Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. I am your host, Daniel Gundlach, and I am thrilled to share with you my views derived from a lifetime of listening on the opera and classical singers about whom I am most passionate. I hope that when you hear these voices, you might echo me in saying, God, I love her, or God, I love him. Now, without any further ado, I bring you this week's episode. Welcome, everyone, to episode seven of Counter Melody. I'm so pleased to have a very special episode for you today, and that is the first part of an interview with the distinguished American soprano and teacher, Janet Williams, who also happens to be a very dear friend of mine. For those of you who don't know Janet, let me tell you a little bit about her. I have her biography right here in front of me, most conveniently. American soprano Janet Williams is uniquely qualified to teach singers and coach performers, having won international critical acclaim for performances in leading roles at the Metropolitan Opera, Berlin Staatsoper, Paris Opera, Opéra de Lyon, Nice Opera, Théâtre Royal de la Monnaie, Geneva Opera, Frankfurt Opera, Cologne Opera, Leipzig Opera, San Francisco Opera, Washington Opera, Dallas Opera, and Michigan Opera Theatre. Her repertoire covers the epochs from Baroque to Contemporary, composers from Graun to Henze, and she has performed over 40 leading roles in the lyric coloratura repertoire. Janet has enjoyed equal success on the world's concert stages with renowned conductors such as Daniel Berenboim, Philippe Herevek, René Jacobs, Raymond Leppard, Nicholas McGeegan, Zubin Mehta, Sir Neville Mariner, Kent Nagano, Donald Ronicles, Gerald Schwartz, and Michael Tilson Thomas. She has made numerous recordings and television appearances, and she was a featured performer in the Oscar-winning documentary film In the Shadow of the Stars. The New York Post wrote about Janet Williams following her Metropolitan Opera debut. Irrepressible is a word that hardly does her justice. Her first act entrance, floating a high, pure phrase across the house, had that charge of electricity that immediately rivets attention, and her famous ballroom aria, Mein Herr Marquis, was delightfully saucy. Janet has studied and trained voices for more than 30 years, earning bachelor degrees in both music education and vocal performance from Michigan State University, and a man Masters in vocal performance from Indiana University, where she was an assistant instructor under Professor Camilla Williams. Among Janet's teaching positions here in Germany, she has been the former acting professor of voice at the Hochschule für Musik und Theater in Rostock, and she is currently the honorary professor and voice lecturer at the Hochschule für Musik Hans Eisler here in Berlin. 
She has taught masterclasses across the United States, in London, Paris, and Berlin, and in other European venues. She was recently invited to join the faculty of the Lotte Lehmann Academy in Germany. Her instructors and mentors have included world-renowned singers Camilla Williams, Regine Crespin, Helen Donat, Brigitte Eisenfeld, Rary Grist, and noted vocal pedagogue David Jones. In 2006, Janet Williams founded Performance Enhancement by Design to inspire emerging young artists and professional singers alike to develop untapped performance potential. Her love of the craft, her curiosity to find answers to speak to the individual performer's needs, and her vision of empowering singers to live their dreams led her to write Nail Your Next Audition, the ultimate 30-day guide for singers, also available in a German edition entitled Erfolgreich Vorsingen. She recently founded the Leistung und Performance Vocal Akademie Berlin, which offers a series of masterclasses, performance master workshops, teacher training seminars, concerts, and individual lessons for young singers preparing for university auditions and budding professional singers looking to gain performance experience and training for better audition and competition results, as well as for voice teachers seeking to enhance their teaching skills. Janet and I first met when we were both apprentice artists at the Merrilla Opera Program of the San Francisco Opera. That was a few years ago now, but never mind about that. She sang Lauretta in our Gianni Schicchi production. She did not, however, join the Western Opera Theatre tour of Don Pasquale that followed the summer program. But while I was on the tour, we did exchange letters back and forth, and we kept track of Janet's progress. She had stayed behind in San Francisco to do some further study. The following year, she became an Adler Fellow and proceeded to do small roles with the company and cover established artists who were singing in the house. Shortly thereafter, she made her surprise debut in Così fan tutte as Despina. We will talk about that in a later episode, but for now, let me just say that we did fall out of touch for a few years, but then we re-established contact in the winter of 2003, when I was between engagements in Paris and Montpellier, and spent the intervening time in Berlin with my friend Roberta Cunningham. We've been close friends ever since. Now, For me, it's been seven years since I moved permanently to Berlin. And now that David, my not-boyfriend, and I have moved to a nicer apartment, we are just three short subway stops away from where Janet lives with her husband, the distinguished German director, Fred Berndt. That being said, we don't get to see each other nearly as much as we'd like. Well, because life sometimes gets in the way, as all of us know. Anyway, I'm not going to go on any further. I am simply going to jump right in and introduce you to the marvelous Janet Williams. Enjoy the first part of our interview. God knows we both did. Well, I can't speak for her. At least I did.
today I am joined by one of my dearest friends, in fact, the supremely sublime Janet Williams. <laughs> keep it coming, keep yeah, it coming. Keep it com- well, look, I'm, I'm the person to come to if you, if you need compliments. If I like you, okay. and God knows I like you. Thank God You're one that. of my favorite people on the earth besides being a sublime artist, mentor, teacher, human being. So welcome to Counter Melody, Janet. Well, thank you, Dan. What a fabulous welcome that was. Thank you. Thank you. I guess let's start with, with little Janet. What your introduction to music was, what, what it was like growing up in your family, what part music played in all of that. Well, music played a big part in my entire life. I'm from Detroit, which many of you know is the city of Motown, the Motor City. And Motown was jumping by the time I came along. When I say jumping, I grew up, I knew all of the artists of Motown. In fact, that's the kind of singer I wanted to be. I wanted to be like Diana Ross and the Supremes, or I wanted to sing background doo-wop doo-wop. Things like that. And I can remember music being in our home from the time I can remember. My father loved all types of music. He'd play Tchaikovsky's symphonies. He loved Tchaikovsky. Don't ask me why or how that even happened because I had never actually even seen an opera until I was in one. I remember uh, joining the glee club of my elementary school. My best friend said, oh, let's go to the church down the street. And my parents didn't go to church at that time. So I asked my mom, can I go to church? And she said, sure. Uh, If you really want to, are you sure you really want to go to church? I said, of course, I want to go with my friend. Was that her home church or she also was just... uh... My friend's church. She was just going just because... Just out of curiosity. Someone had invited her. Okay. Because the children's choir was singing. So um, we get in the church and this little girl walks up to the microphone and they, the men, they have to bring the microphone down all the way because she's so short. Her name was Rita Jackson. I'll never forget. Rita Jackson started singing in that microphone about Jesus. with the voice that was huge, that filled the whole church. And I looked up there and I said, I want to do that. So I looked in the bulletin, when is the next choir rehearsal? I told my mom, I'm going to the next choir rehearsal. She said, okay, if that's what you want to do. to the choir rehearsal to get ready to sing. And the woman looks at me and she says, oh, I'm so sorry, little girl. You have to receive Jesus as your personal savior in order to sing in the choir. I said, okay, where can I do that? (laughs) Give me Jesus as long as I can sing. As long as I can sing, give me Jesus. I can't be dead. 
And that's how it really started. I started singing in the church choir after I was baptized, of course. And the Did you have to make a public profession of faith as well, or what? Of course, of course. Yeah. And okay. also, like stand up in front of the congregation and all of that, or do you remember? You had to walk up mm -hmm. to the altar as they, when they invited people to join the church, and the minister would ask you, little girl, do you want to give your life to Christ? And I said, yes. I want to give my life to Christ. I want to be baptized, and I want Jesus Christ to be my Savior so that I can join the choir. <laughs> Did you say that at I the time? <laughs> and of course, everybody laughed. But eventually, because you do have to go to Sunday school and you do, I did really become a Christian <laughs> with the lessons and the Sunday school teachings and so forth. So, and later, my parents started attending church, not the same church. They had a very good friend who became a minister and they started to go to his church. And this was a turning point for me as well because... Were these like AME churches? Or? Baptist. Baptist, Baptist mm -hmm. okay. When I joined this church with my parents, the minister's wife was the pianist, Bobby Jordan, and her daughter, who was one of my best friends, Kim Jordan, would play the piano like nobody's business. She's a pianist today. Oh yes, I remember you speaking about her. Yes, yes. And Kim uh, and I were given the children's choir to direct. How old were you at this point? I think we were 13 and 14. And when was your first experience going to the church and wanting to sing in the choir? Well, I think I was then? eight or nine. Okay, so yeah. a few years, a few later. years later. Yeah. And by this time, my mother realized I really loved music and I was taking piano lessons and I knew I wanted to go to uh, Cass Technical High School in Detroit, which is a school that many famous musicians have come out of, jazz musicians as well as classical instrumentalists and singers. And you had to audition to get into this program. You had to be able to read music, and I already played the piano, so I was able to get into the program. And Kim also went to this high school. So we were pursuing the same types of things, getting experience, as leaders and conductors yes. and singers with the children's choir. And I mean, when I say we were given the children's choir, we decided what music they were going to sing on the Sundays that the children sang. We did the arrangements, Kim and I. We taught them how to blend and sing because we were getting a lot of that as well at Cass Tech. And so it was a... a so from, from the age of 13 you started, and how long into your high school years did you direct the children's choir? All the way through high school. In high school, there was a woman by the name of Velma Froud. Velma Froud ran the harp department. We had a harp department with nine harps, I believe, in Detroit, Michigan. At the high school? You <laughs> At know? the high school. Okay. And there were many ensembles, and one of the ensembles was harp and vocal. Harp and vocal, we learned deportment. I, my mom tells me, I remember you walking around with books on your head. Oh, no! <laughs> It's like charm school or something. It was like, it was deportment, yes. 
and carriage and haltung and what it takes to bring a, a good sound out of your body. I got that in high school from Velma Frau. Well, Velma Frau was very, very strict. She had this rule. If you have to miss a rehearsal, you have to sing the whole program before you could go and miss that rehearsal. So to prove that you were to prove that, that you, you were weren't going to be you were far enough along exactly. that you could you could afford to miss right it. because many of us were in several different ensembles. Yes. I was in Magical Singers. I was in another uh, small ensemble and harp and vocal. We had concerts and we couldn't be at every rehearsal. Yes. So there were, I think, four of us who were going to miss a rehearsal. And she sat at the harp and we stood in back of her and I was the only soprano. So I said, I'm going to sing so she can hear me and know I know my part. And I started singing. And she put the harp down in the middle of the piece. And I was like, oh my God, what is happening now? <laughs> did, oh did I make a mistake? Did somebody else make a mistake? Am I singing too loud? So you were singing in parts with the yes, other yes, singers who had to miss singers. rehearsal. Exactly. Okay. So there was a, a first alto, a second alto, and uh, maybe a, maybe two first altos. I don't remember, but I was the only soprano. So I said, yes. well, I've got to step up. And she turned around and looked over her shoulder. I was right in back of her. And she said, don't you ever give me any less than that. <laughs> and so I said, okay, I'm gonna have to really up my game and sing. Well, from that moment on, I realized I had, I had something. So it started with Velma Froud and her deportment and, and Bobby Jordan with the children's choir and Church of Our Father Baptist Church, that little girl singing in the day. And what was her name again? Rita Jackson. Rita, right. <laughs> we became friends later. I didn't know that at the time. Those were the things that really impressed me and started me on my path to becoming a singer. It just strikes me how these Formative experiences can play such an enormous part in our development. Just because your friend said to you, oh, let's go over to this yeah. church. Well, it's, I don't believe there are any accidents. I really well, don't. no, clearly not. I'm gonna wear a diamond in that new Jerusalem. I'm gonna walk the streets of gold. It's in that homeland of the I'm gonna view the host in white. They've been traveling day and night. Well, in, at least in my life, it seems that everything has kind of happened in sync. Yes. And, uh, and I really believe in that. I don't see any of this as just, oh, it just so happened that I was. It's not to happenstance. No, it was yeah. really. For me, this was my journey. It was my way. And it began as such. Uh, when I look back and think upon it, I don't know why I turned to the classical field because I was really headed toward pop-oriented R&B soul music. That's what I really, really wanted to sing. Hey, life, look at me. I can see the
Rather than saying that we're old friends, I like to say that we're friends of long standing. That's right. Long and time uh, so we, we go way back yes, at this point in our lives. But the year that we got to know each other was the year that that Mary Wilson tell-all book came out. Oh, yeah. Dream Girl. Dream Girl. Right? Yes. And so... <laughs> When, in which she kind of like, uh, you know, sort of vivisects Miss Ross, shall we yes, say, yes. you know, and so you, I, I just remember talking. I was a little perturbed about oh, that. Oh, you were, you I? were, yes, you well, were. for me, Diana Ross symbolized so much. Here was this girl from the inner city of Detroit, with a lot of chutzpah, not so much talent. I mean, no, she's skinny, funny skinny, looking. Skinny, funny looking in the whole yeah. thing. Uh, and But she had that certain something. She, mm. And she still has it to this day. That's right. And she developed her voice. She developed her, her style and her way of being on stage that attracted people. People wanted to see her and hear her. That's right. Watch what was going to happen next. This glamour woman. And for me, yes. I think I did crave being in the spotlight somehow, even though I was a bit shy, I was a bit quiet uh, yes. at the beginning. But I craved that, and my mother and father both recognized that because I would do crazy, my sister and I would do crazy things like, you know, put a blanket on our heads and walk down the stairs thinking we were princesses, you know. Or <laughs> I think lots of kids do crazy things like that. But when you saw Diana Ross come on stage with these outrageous gowns and costumes and fabulous uh, glamour looks and the long eyelashes and the this and the that and the other, for me, it was just like, oh my God. And this woman is from Detroit. Yes. And she looks like me. I think that had a lot to do with it. I also had really big eyes, mm -hmm. kind of a wide smile. So we didn't, in my opinion, look alike, but I, I felt like, oh, I could look something like Diana Ross. Yes. So that was uh, one of the, the things about Diana Ross and many young black girls from Detroit, from my generation. She inspired many of us to reach for something bigger than what we were used to. Yes. To dream. Do you know where you're going to? Do you like the things that life is showing you? Where are you going to? Do you know? Do you get to really dream about things like that? I remember seeing footage of her traveling to Europe with the Supremes and in Paris in front of the Eiffel Tower. In Hollywood. I was thinking, oh my God, she's now in Hollywood making the lady movies. Sings the blues. Lady sings the blues. Yes. And, and I thought to myself then, oh wow, it would be so wonderful to have a life where I didn't have a set nine to five job where I could really travel the world and meet people and ha and visit new cultures, learn about new cultures. And at that time, it's I like she gave you license to dream yes, in a way, didn't exactly, she? Exactly, exactly. And I yeah. think that, that is so important for all young people to find, yes. especially ones who might not have such a huge horizon.
My family, I mean, all of my cousins and, and aunts and uncles, we lived in the same city. And we would visit each other. We, we lived in the same neighborhood. So we were, it's a small kind of enclosed knit group of people. And, um, Which is a source of strength in and of itself. Absolutely. I mean, it can't so be underestimated, but it can also be a little uh, confining, perhaps. Yes, and it can also just kind of keep you in a tunnel vision. Yeah. Where you don't really, you can't really see outside of that circle. Yes. Well, because of Cast Tech, I was going into a school outside of my neighborhood, and I met kids from all over the city. And not just yeah. black kids, I met white kids, I met right. Hispanic kids, I met Ukrainian kids, <laughs> you know, yeah. just all yeah. different uh, cultures and so forth. And then through the music itself... With a common bond of, of, yes, of the arts and we music. We found something in yes. common that we could, we could work toward together. We weren't just identified by our culture or our color. It, was, it opened Your my Your heritage, yes, yeah. It opened my world. And... I think that started with Diana Ross. Diana Ross married a white man. That's For right. the black community, that was like, wow, right. whoa, whoa. <laughs> That's right. And I remember defending her. I said, well, why is everybody so upset she fell in love with someone? And my, my friends were like, yes, but you know, there was always this thing when a black woman got too successful or very successful, it was almost like she was too successful to be with a black man. So many black women married white men. It was always this sense of staying within your race, you know, staying yes. within your culture. Don't, don't so that the personal so always derives these political repercussions and, yes. and implications. So but that one can't simply act on one's, you know, follow one's heart. own it's heart. Terrible. That you have to consider what the the political implications yes. of those. Not uh, only political, but the social. Yes, exactly. But I rejected that. I have always rejected that. Yes. And that made me also stand out. I was, <laughs> it was a little different. There were very few interracial relationships in my circle. But I always had interracial relationships. Are you talking about like what, uh, high school and beyond? Or, yes, or, okay. high school and beyond, college and so mm -hmm, forth. Mm -hmm. But I was like, well, you know, I'm equal opportunity. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. But I think also moving in circles where there were lots of Caucasians, lots of people of different cultures. Yes. When you move in circles like that because of music, you get to know people and you get to realize and see people are people. They're good people. There are people that are not so great yes. in every culture. Yes. Why will I just be with a person because they are the same race as me? That makes no sense to me. Yes, there are so many other no ways sense. of determining uh, compatibility. And yes. by using that as the sole yardstick by which one chooses one's partner... It's pretty, it's, it's pretty limiting. It can be pretty limiting. Yeah. yeah but, if, but, you know, everybody should do what, what they feel is right of for course. them. Of course. I want to also talk to you a bit about how you found, and now we're really switching back to our initial mm -hmm. discussion, but how you found your way to opera then from all of this experience, because it sounds like you were not really thinking no, in those terms. I wasn't. When you were even, even at the arts high school. No, I wasn't. But because the, even at the arts high school, they were preparing people for careers in pop music or careers in jazz, as well as classical. That's pretty, that's so, pretty uh, progressive for yes. that day and age. And we which we were being Absolutely. raised, right? 
So the arts really had a wide, it, it was covered a wide, a wide range of things, yes. Right. One of the most famous female jazz pianists who just died recently came out of Cast Tech, Jerry oh, Allen. Jerry Allen oh, was yes. an innovator. She was a she was huge. Greg Fillingames, who played keyboards for Michael Jackson and for the, all of these Motown groups and toured with them, he came from Cass Tech. Diana Ross went to Cass Tech as wow, well. Wow. So you have all these people. And then there was a wonderful harpist by the name of Harvey something or another. But he was a wonderful solo harpist. My parents were adamant that I get a college education. So that meant I had to go study. And I was speaking to one of my teachers at Cast Tech. I said, I want to study, but I really want to sing. I really want to sing. I want to sing pop music. And he says, well, Janet, I would give you this idea. This was Mr. Gleason. He said, if you go to university and you study, study voice. You can study voice. You can learn, learn how your voice works and all that. But also get an education degree. And that way, if none of the things work out that you, want to, you really want to do, you'll at least have that in your back pocket. I went to Michigan State and they had a five-year degree program for double majors. So I decided, okay, I'm going to major in voice, performance, and music education. I did that. Well, how did I get into my first opera? There was an opera workshop performance. Michigan State didn't have an opera department. They just had a voice department. And within the voice department, there were choirs and there was this opera workshop. Right. One of the electives was opera workshop. And I said, eh, opera, eh. the schools we'd gone to symphony concerts and at that time when I was in school there was Michigan Opera Theater but I didn't know about it it was right. not on my radar right. at all and my voice teacher said why don't you audition for the role of Frasquita in Carmen you would be a wonderful Frasquita I said okay whatever okay and it was so much fun You had the costumes, you had the orchestra, all the instruments, you had other people on stage, you had to act, and singing came easily. I was in seventh heaven when I did that. So that whole year, you're working on that production yes. in opera workshop, yes. bringing together different scenes. So the first opera that I had seen or ever seen, I was in it, and that was Carmen as Frasquita. So you never remember like watching uh, like live from the Met telecasts or anything like that? Nothing? Never. Never, 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 ever. But my voice teacher, Harlan Jennings, would play recordings in my lesson. He was trying to motivate me, I think, because I was not motivated. I was just doing this so that I could get my degree and move to New York City and become a background singer and then hopefully yes. a, a, a star, you know. Yes. He played for me a recording of Leontine Price singing Pache Pache No Dio.
And I said, what is that? And he said, this is Leontine Price. And he showed me her picture. It was an LP, you know, he showed yes. me. Yes. And I saw this black woman with an afro and big earrings, beautiful. And I thought, she looks like me. Yes. <laughs> and yes. I listened in this round, rich, beautiful sound coming out of her mouth. I thought, oh my God. I, you see, my I, I'm, I remember it. I have goosebumps thinking about it. The first singer I ever heard was Leontine as well. Isn't that something? My father brought me up to his his study where he was studying for a sermon on Saturday afternoon, and it was a Met broadcast, broadcast and it was Aida. The, it was the Nile Act, and she was singing yeah. Patria yeah. Mia, and it was just like, what? Exquisite. What the hell am I listening to yeah. here? I just flipped out. Yeah. It, that was my out. reaction, and I, I, yeah. couldn't, I couldn't speak. So yours was Pache Pache. Pache Pache. <laughs> and I remember going into the practice room after my lesson and, and getting checked. Maledizione! Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Secretly, you know. <laughs> And then he also played uh, Joan Sutherland in, in another lesson. Yes. And I'd heard those two singers and I was like, oh. So that piqued my interest, the, oh, the three yes. things. And I thought, this is really something. But I didn't think that I could be an opera singer, not really at this point. I was just intrigued, and I found it interesting and fabulous, these voices I was hearing. End of my sophomore year, I was going into my junior year, I went home and I said to my mother, friends of mine are going to New York this summer, and I'm thinking about going, she says, okay, we'll have fun, you know. So we went, and we drove, we had a great time, and mm. my friend was a jingle singer. He sang in the background for Roberta Flack and Luther Vandross. And he also went to Cast Tech, but he graduated two years before me. Yes. So he was already in that circuit. So I had an in, and that was my in. So we got to New York, and I said, okay, Denny, can I listen to some of your sessions? He says, why don't you sing? Come on, sing with us. So I came and oh my I, God. I was in heaven singing doo-wop, 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 whatever. The, I don't even remember what it was, but I thought, oh, this is the life. I'm going to be a jingle singer. A jingle singer. Yes. What more could one want oh, in what, life? I was so happy. Oh, I can't man. tell you. Just the feeling of being in New York City, singing with these uh, singers who were doing commercials, and they were singing with background and traveling all over the And of course in those days, I mean, there was so much work for that a kind lot of, of work. Uh, yeah. A lot of work.
So I go back home and I just announced to my mom and dad, okay, I am not finishing school. I am leaving and I'm moving to New York City because I, I can So it was the, you were you had just finished the third year of a five year program, I had is that right? I just finished my second year of oh, second year. Okay. program. And I was going into my junior year. Okay. This is pivotal. My mother looked at me and she said, we have invested two years of hard-earned money so that you could get a college degree. You're going to get a college degree, and then you can do whatever you want with your life afterwards. So that meant I wasn't going to New York City. I had to go back to Michigan State. I was so upset. Yeah, it was a sage advice, of course, yes, of in course. retrospect, right? Of but, course, uh, and but at the time I was like, you don't understand. I, you, I want you tell us to follow our dreams and to do what we're passionate about. And my mother looked at me and she said, "You know, I heard you sing in that opera, and you were wonderful. Who would want to be a jingle singer when they could sing something so special? Now, do you think that everybody can do that?" And I said, I don't think I can be an opera singer. She says, why not? I said, well, I don't have a voice like Leontine Price. She said, so what? You have your voice. So that just kind of stuck there. And I went back to school and my teacher was on sabbatical. That meant they brought another teacher in, Donald Lucader. He was a coach from New York City. He heard me sing, and he knew immediately what I needed to light a fire under me. So he gave me Pace, Pace Mio Dio, Casta Diva. Enormous Enormous repertoire. And he says, okay, let's see what you do with these. And I went into the practice room, and then I had my record player at home, and I would listen to all these singers. I was listening to, of course, Madame Price. Of course, Madame Price. Maria Callas. Because he told me about Callas. I already knew about Joan Sutherland. And then he told me about Anna Maffo, and he told me about Beverly Seals, and he told me about all of these great opera singers who I had never heard of. I was bitten by the bug. Do you hear me? Like 24-7, that's all I wanted to do was listen and try to imitate. Listen and try to imitate. Well, the whole voice faculty was sure he was going to ruin my voice. (laughs) They were so concerned. He said, no, she is on the right track and she's doing exactly what she needs to do. I won competitions singing that repertoire. Like what did you sing in these competitions? Pace, pace, mio Dio. I won competitions singing Depuis Le Jour. It was the chutzpah. And also I had a good ear, so I could imitate colors. I could imitate what I thought was this round, rich sound. Of course, it it was all wrong. (laughs) 
but it gave me something to hope for and I thought if I can win a competition singing this maybe I could become an opera singer and at one point a new teacher came from Indiana and she heard me and she says sweetheart you need to go and study with Camilla Williams <laughs> Camilla is my teacher. Who, do you remember who that person was? She's now called Jean Del Santos. She was a wonderful full lyric soprano. And she heard the potential, but she saw I was going down a slippery slope. And so I graduated and... Did you do the whole five-year program? Though? I did the whole five-year okay. program. I got two okay. bachelor degrees, okay. at, which I'm really happy for. I had to do my master's then with Camilla. So I went to meet her and sing for her. And... Tell us a little bit about Camilla. I wish that everyone listening would already know, but maybe they don't. Oh, Camilla. Camilla was, Camilla was an icon and a pioneer for black opera singers. Camilla was the first African-American opera singer with a fixed contract at an American opera house. That was New York City Opera. Camilla Williams was the first recipient, the very first recipient of the Marian Anderson Award. Marian Anderson was still alive and she was very famous for singing uh, concerts and, and, oh, uh, and yes. so forth. And she had not made her Met debut yet. She was, this was really, I think, in the, in the late, maybe in the 50s. I'm just going to jump in here for a moment with a little bit of information about the Marian Anderson Award that I just researched on Wikipedia. The Marian Anderson Award was originally established in 1943 by African-American singer Marian Anderson after she was awarded the $10,000 Bach Prize that year by the city of Philadelphia. Anderson used the award money to establish a singing competition to help support young singers, recipients of which include, and I'll just include a few names, Camilla Williams in 1943 and 44. Who else do we know here? Betty Allen in 1952, Gloria Davy in 1952, Judith Raskin in 1952 and 53, uh, Shirley Verrett in 1957, etc. Eventually, the prize fund ran out of money and it was disbanded. Florence Quivar, another favorite of mine, was the last recipient of this earlier award in 1976. In 1990, the award was reestablished and has dispensed $25,000 annually. In 1998, the prize was restructured with the Marian Anderson Award going to an established artist, not necessarily a singer, who exhibits leadership in a humanitarian area. A separate prize, the Marian Anderson Prize for Emerging Classical Artists, is given to promising young classical singers. And there are a bunch of people who have won, including Ruby Dee and Ossie Davis, Sidney Poitier, Maya Angelou, Norman Lear, Paddy LaBelle, Dionne Warwick, Harry Belafonte, Elizabeth Taylor, Quincy Jones. 
someone named Bill Cosby, whose award was rescinded for some reason. So lots and lots and lots of very important people who have made an enormous contribution. Now, back to Janet. Camilla Williams was the soloist when Martin Luther King made his I Had a Dream speech on the March on Washington. Permit me to present to you, to sing the national anthem, Miss Camilla Williams. She sang the national anthem before he spoke. And she made the way clear for people like Leontine Price, yes. for people like Jesse Norman, for singers like Martina Arroyo. And there's the classic 1951 recording of Porgy and Bess, on which a very young Camilla sings Bess. And that recording is in the Smithsonian. That is the the national treasure. Yes. So yes. Suzanne uh, recording. Anyway, Camilla was an icon and a pioneer in many ways. By the time I met her, she was very wise and had very fixed opinions. She was a, was a taskmaster. I walked in the room. This is the first meeting of with Camilla Williams, Diva Asaluta. I walk in. Of course, I was a little full of myself because I had won a couple of competitions and I thought I knew what I was doing. She looked at me and I looked at her when I walked into her studio. She had a huge yellow hat, yellow and white hat. It was like a sombrero almost. With a yellow lacy dress. She was always very feminine, dainty. And heels this high, you know, stiletto heels. Yes. All yellow and white. Everything yellow and white matching perfectly. And she's sitting at her desk and she looks at me and she came. She says, so my dear, what would you like to sing for me? I said, well, I have Pachi Pachi Mio Dio. And she looked at me, she says, well, I can look at you until I don't want to hear that. <laughs> oh my God. I was insulted. Of course. Well, she says, what else do you have? And I said, well, I have Costa Diva. Oh Lord. <laughs> Is what she said, oh Lord. Oh she says, do you have any Mozart? And I was like, oh, well, yes, I do. Non mi dia. Non mi dia. <laughs> she says, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, 
says, well, just sing that. <laughs> wow. <is> that... <laughs> and, and I was just like, what is she, what's she got up her butt, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> I, I sat saying, no, me dear. Mm-hmm. She looked at me. Yes, you have talent, but you sing back. Who you been listening to? I said, well, I listen to a lot of singers, a lot of people. Well, don't imitate. You are imitating, and you that is not your real sound. I'm looking at her like she's got two heads and thinking to myself, why is she insulting me? But a little voice in me knew I hadn't been feeling really great with this repertoire. And some of it I was struggling at times. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, nobody ever, ever said that I sing back. Nobody's ever told me that. Was she talking about yeah. this? Oh, yeah. 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 Back in the space. Mm-hmm. Oh. And I went home and I called my mom. I was like, she told me I sing back. And my mother said, well, maybe you do. (laughs) (laughs) I said, but you know what? Nobody's ever criticized me. Nobody had ever criticized me saying what needed work or whatever. I said, she's the first person to really say. Were you aware at the time when when you started with the heavier repertoire with that replacement voice teacher that the other faculty members were concerned about what No, I didn't know that. You didn't know that that at the time. time. No, I I heard about this later. Yes, of course. When Jean sent me. Because then Jean, of course, talked to Camilla and told Camilla, gave Camilla a lot of background. So I sang all of that on my recital, my senior recital, <laughs> like those five arias and then some songs. And I think Camilla already knew she needed to bring Kinda. me down a peg. Or yes, two. yes. <laughs> and she said, I will take you, but you must sing only Mozart for a while. And you cannot do any performing unless you talk it over with me first, because you're going to be representing me now when you go out to sing. So I said, okay. We didn't have the money to send me right away to school because my parents were now paying for my sister's education yes, yes. and so forth. So I worked for a year as a teacher in the Detroit public school system. Wow. And that's how I knew. A music teacher or a regular teacher? I was a substitute teacher. And then I, they put me in music in a high school for the second half of the year. And I realized I had better become an opera singer because I'm not going to do this. <laughs> 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 I'm not doing this. I saved some money and I was able to get some student loans, quite a few of them, and also got a scholarship and went to IU. And that's how my real opera training began with Camilla, with lots of leader and lots of Mozart.
And in fact, Camilla made some beautiful leader recordings. In yes, fact. she did. She They're was... really phenomenally beautiful. I mean, that was yeah. a voice. It had a silvery quality, but also a beautiful depth of sound. I mean, it's the yes. perfect sort of chiaroscuro yes. sound. She studied with Madame Freshel. That's Julia. right. That's right. And Shirley Verrett studied with yes. Freshel as well. She and Shirley, for me, they both had that chiaroscuro, that yes. wonderful mix of roundness but brightness in their sounds. And it was, it was, it was interesting to hear the two completely different voice types. Yes, voice types exactly. Camilla had some wonderful recordings, and of course, she also talked. She was so. Um, how can I put it? She knew who she was. Yes. She knew what she had contributed to this art form. Oh, and she was very, very active in reminding you if you didn't know or telling you because she didn't want to be forgotten. That's right. And she felt, at the end of her lifetime, she often felt bitter, as if people were forgetting who she was. Well, and what so she, she had been passed over in a way, yes. yeah. Yeah, very much so. But I got all of that. I got all of those stories. And yeah. I, but I also had the the background, so I understood it. And when a young diva would recognize her, she was so thrilled. It just made such a huge difference in her attitude, in her face. You could you could see it. I can remember when she was talking to Jesse Norman and uh, and she said something like, well, I don't know if you know who I am. And, and Jesse said, well, who doesn't know who Camilla Williams is? Who on this earth would not know who Camilla Williams is and what you've done for black singers? when she'd always quote Jesse Norman. But people like Leontine never mentioned Camilla. And she right. really, really, I think that hurt her. And well, it, there was a certain, um, you know, overlapping of repertoire, perhaps. And I know, think, and too, you, they were both very they are both very proud and they wanted to be recognized for their own accomplishments yes. for what they have done yes. and, and I, I understand that as well but in any case um, I say all that just to preface the fact that she was touring on a uh, recital tour she did a lot of community concerts for Cami yes and she was with Ar Arthur Judson the president of Cami wow and later she told me I didn't know how much money I was really making because they would only pay me a fraction of what they were really bringing in. The things mm. that she could tell you, mm. 
and warned me about. She warned me about singing Porgy and Bess on stage. And I said, Camilla, or Miss Williams at the time, we're not related, by the way. I said, Miss Williams, I would love to sing Clara. That's some of the most beautiful music ever written. She says, yes, it is, and you do it on, in concert. But if you do it on stage, there is the definite possibility that's all you're going to be offered. You look at these singers who are doing, they're losing their voices on, on these Porgy and Best tours. I remember you telling me also about a bit of advice that she gave you about uh, singing servants. Do you, yeah, uh, you want to tell us about that? Was that, that the one the, when, I, when I did Adela at the Met? Or Yes. Yeah, she was, she... She says, well, you don't, I don't re exactly remember exactly what she said, but she told me that uh, her old coach, Laszlo Halash, who had coached me as well on several things, asked her, why would she go to the Met singing? Why would Janet go singing Adela? Which is Adela is the, is the, the, the servant girl in Fleda Mouse. Yes, she's yeah. the servant to um, uh, Rosalinda, Rosalinda, her maid. Exactly. to Camilla, I said, well, that's what I've been offered, and I don't, I don't feel any shame in playing Adele. Adele, it's a wonderful role, and it's not about a black maid, it's just about a, a servant girl. I said, so is Susanna. I mean, how many things would I not be able to sing? Despina. If, Despina. Which I was said, a big role for you. Yeah, exactly. But there was a time when I was offered Clara at the Met, and uh, I told Camilla, and she says, I dare you to do it. I dare you to do it. Which meant she did Meaning, not want don't to you do it. Meaning, don't you dare do it? Don't you dare do it. And I said, but Camilla, it's the Met. And she says, I dare you to do it. And she says, didn't, you, didn't San Francisco offer, offer you something? I said, yeah, they offered me Nanetta at the same time.
She says, well, you do nannetta. You tell them that you, you can't uh, do the, the Clara because you're doing nannetta. So I told my agent and he told Lenore Rosenberg and reportedly, supposedly, Lenore said to my agent, oh, she's a smart cookie, isn't she? And my agent told me that. said, what does she mean by that? He says, I was going to ask you the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's because uh, she knew it was probably a better choice for me to sing Nanetta, even yes. at San Francisco Opera, yes. than to make my debut at the Met singing Clara, when I hadn't done anything else there. Right. It's different now. I mean, a lot of the, the yeah. black singers on the circuit today who are in singing in, in houses all over the world, and there are several. They're, they've already sung, had major debuts at the Met. Uh, right. Angel Blue, she sang oh, her Mimi. Oh man, she's glorious yeah, singer. she's wonderful. Somebody like Morris Robinson, who's also sung uh, uh, The King and Aida and some other thing, other, th other roles, Sarastro and so forth. These singers, if they also sing a porgy, it's not going to affect their careers in a negative way because right. they've been singing other things. But singers who just you don't get out, uh, you don't get sort of pegged exactly. into you know a porgy singer. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, and I have lots of friends who unfortunately were the victims of that. So it's yes. a very, it was, at least in the past, a very real consideration. And yes. Camilla guided me through all of that. Yes. So she was, she was something. So what roles did you do when you were at IU under her tutelage? Did you, did you did do opera I did Donna Anna. You did do Donna Anna. I did Anna. do uh, Donna Anna. Yes. And I did um, in Orpheus in the Underworld. Orpheus in the Underworld. Not Diana, but the... Uh, Venus. Venus. Oh, Venus. Oh, yes. And I did the Tsar's Bride. Um, I did Musetta. Those are the, the ones that I remember. Okay, as the Germans say when they are about to do something really obnoxious, sei mir nicht böse. In other words, don't be mad at me. So, I'm just going to say, sei mir nicht böse. But this is where I'm going to cut the interview off for today. Uh, we will conclude with a short clip of Janet in the film, In the Shadow of the Stars, which is about the chorus of the San Francisco Opera. It was an Oscar-winning documentary from 1991. And in it, Janet sings a short clip of Musetta. She just mentioned that this was a role that she had sung when she was in school at Indiana, and so we will just end with a little clip of her singing Musetta from that film. You will also hear the prompter Philip Eisenberg in the background, or not even in the background, he's really very much in the foreground. But you do get to hear a little bit of Janet singing Musetta, and unfortunately, I don't think there's any other clip of that anywhere. <laughs> 
cerca in me da capo legatemi alla seggiola quella gente che dirà è da sapore Please come back next time. I hope to bring you part two of the Janet Williams interview. It will be in three different parts because we do love to talk. By the way, I was just over at Janet and Fred's last night and we were going over the music that I had chosen to use for underscoring and Janet was very touched by the way I was able to personalize a lot of her experience and use recordings of people who had been influential in her musical upbringing. As usual, I would like to thank composer Alan Segal for his beautiful underscoring. I would like to thank my producer, Steve Robinson, for his assistance in getting this podcast out there. And also, of course, a huge thank you to you, my listeners. I ask that you continue to support Counter Melody by subscribing, rating, passing the news on to your friends who might find this material of interest. I know that there are more than are currently finding me, so anything you can do to help me get the word out is deeply appreciated. Thank you. Until next time, my friends, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Gundlach. <laughs>